0: Well, thank you, all for, thank you all for coming back after lunch, I'm going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. And the subtitle of this is When Scientists Abandon Science. We've had a couple of questions over the last two days about trust in science. And to me, unfortunately, the pandemic has probably set us back many decades and led to deep distrust. We've only seen, I think, the tip of the iceberg. So I'm gonna walk you through some things from the pandemic, some considerations. And who am I? Of course, just as a background, I'm a professor in epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. And I'm a practicing doctor, just like John, see everything from benign hematology to rectal cancer, a working clinic in the hospital. And I teach several classes and run a research laboratory. So I think one of the main points I want to make of this talk, there are two concurrent themes. One is on a number of important questions around the pandemic, scientists did not express uncertainty adequately. We took drastic actions, we extolled those actions, we didn't express the underlying uncertainty. That went hand in hand with we didn't permit or foster debate. The debate was actively squelched and prevented on social media channels and even at universities. I cannot think of any debate at any of the premier US universities, Harvard, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, University of California, San Francisco, on whether or not we should have closed elementary schools. We went the entire pandemic, we made one of the biggest health policy decisions of the last century, closing elementary schools in my city of San Francisco for 18 months. That was never debated at any any university in America. How could that be? We didn't run studies to reduce uncertainty we did so many things we didn't study it at all we have no clue about community masking leaving the pandemic then we entered the pandemic we have one study from denmark danmask it has some limitations we have a bangladesh study i'm going to show you that has riddled with limitations and a study in the guinea bissau that's not been published but in europe there were no studies in the netherlands there were no studies in america no cluster randomized trials of three feet for six feet distancing no trials of school closure no trials of school reopening there were proposals in norway We didn't do anything to reduce uncertainty for non-pharmacologic interventions. We did a poor job even for pharmacologic interventions. We have many pharmacologic interventions we use in 2023 that have no credible evidence. Paxlovid is one. It has never had a positive study in people who have received the vaccine. And yet it is widespread in America being prescribed every day. And then I think the establishment view, the view that was pushed by scientific authorities was incorrect and not only in retrospect, but at the time. I think that a lot of the reasons why we got the pandemic policy wrong was because we were fearful, we lacked principles, particularly scientific principles, we were ignorant or worse. We turned scientific questions into political questions, particularly in the United States. The second theme of this talk, I think if we have time to cover it, is that academic freedom and censorship to science and scientists are threats to universities and beyond. We had both active violations of academic freedom where people were told to not publish articles, to have articles stripped from servers. I'll show you some of that. And we've had passive violations of freedom where debates were not held. If you don't have a debate on whether or not kids should mask, then it is a type of censorship in my mind. In the United States, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC recommended that kids who were 25 months old wear a cloth mask in daycare for up to 12 hours, except for when they nap. That policy was implemented at the federal level and mandated in Head Start programs, and you could have children thrown out of school if they didn't comply. You had families pulled off airplanes for noncompliant three-year-olds. That was the power of the state enforcing a public health intervention that has no credible evidence and doesn't really make any sense, even without evidence. And that is a type of, I think, a deep problem that we weren't able to debate that. Okay, so let me walk through some of these things. I don't want to talk about everything. I think it's impossible. I think some of the hardest things to talk about are lockdown, uh, school closure. School closure, I think I won't waste too much time on because I think increasingly people realize that was a great mistake, uh, particularly school closure among elementary school kids. In Europe, in places like Switzerland, they closed for six weeks. In the United States, in Los Angeles, in D.C., in Chicago, in San Francisco, we had school closure from five years to 18 years old for 18 months. They were out of school. It's a generation of kids who will be lost and they're gonna have diminished health outcomes as a result of that. Let me talk about hospital visitor policies, delaying the vaccine's initial approval, vaccine mandates, and this perpetual booster campaign in the time I have with you. Hospital visitor policies. This was a paper we published in the American Journal of Medicine. It's called The Effect of Hospital Visitor Policies on Patients, Their Visitors, Healthcare Providers During the COVID-19 Pandemic, A Systematic Review. Here are some of the things we did in America, perhaps even in your country. We prevented parents from seeing their children who were dying of cancer in the hospital. They could only come one at a time. So the mother and father could not be present with the child who was dying of leukemia. This was a COVID mitigation effort. It has no credible evidence as far as I can tell. I'm not sure this policy prevented one case of COVID-19. If a child who was six years old was dying of leukemia in the hospital and their brother was 10 years old, that brother was never allowed to see that dying child. This was an American policy. We prevented adult children from holding the hand of their dying father or mother in the peak of the pandemic. And that that policy continued even into the fall and continued even after vaccination, that children were prevented from being present to dying parents, particularly if those parents were dying of COVID-19. And I think the key point is that there is no evidence in our systematic review that any of these policies slowed the spread of COVID-19 in the hospital or in the community. There was no effort to collect the data. There was no effort to study these policies. These policies, of course, are conflict with our moral intuition. These, this is, a, a, I think, a huge overreach by public health to do these things, and naturally, we're going to face a severe backlash from trust from the public. Now, one of the reasons offered for why we did this was we had PPE shortage. We didn't have enough masks. We didn't have enough gowns. But we didn't try any other strategy, such as modified PPE. By that I mean, could you have somebody visit a family and then have them have a take a tablecloth and and fashion that into a gown? Could you have them use a cloth mask and then have them go to a hotel and spend a week in quarantine to see if they have the virus? There are all sorts of things we could have tried to both permit people from being present and try to minimize spread. We did no studies. There's no randomized studies. There's no non-randomized studies. No attempts were made. Hospitals who are most fearful of lawyers implemented the most draconian measures and those measures were not questioned. There was no debate at any university that I'm aware of about whether or not it was morally right and scientifically valid to prevent parents from being with their dying child of leukemia. And that to me is a type of excess, Uh, that's that's a type of violation of academic freedom. So I think it's problematic from a moral standpoint, from a medical standpoint, no evidence was generated. If you want to say these things had value, I think the onus is on those people to have generated evidence, they did not. And then nobody held debates on these policies and they continued post vaccination, much to my dismay. Of course, I was furious about these policies and I tried my best to try to stop them. If you look at the evidence base in our paper, you find that the evidence base for these kinds of visitor policies is extremely poor cross-sectional surveys, retrospective cohorts and qualitative research. There's no evidence that I'm aware of that it actually slowed COVID-19 spread. And most of the evidence predates COVID. Okay, vaccines. And I wanna be very clear with my position on COVID-19 vaccines, which is a nuanced position I think in the first quarter of 2021, so January, February, 2021, when Pfizer and Moderna had their randomized control trials readout on the vaccine, I'm confident that an older person who had never had COVID-19 derived a substantive benefit from vaccination, particularly the first dose. If you're 60 years old in January, 2021, you didn't have COVID, I would have encouraged you to rush out and get that vaccine. If you had COVID-19 previously, To date, I'm aware of no credible evidence that there is a further reduction in severe disease or hospitalization from vaccination. Yes, you boost antibodies, but as we've talked about throughout this conference, that is a surrogate marker, and that surrogate has not been validated in the setting of people who have survived the infection of COVID-19. Boosting antibodies does not mean you're less likely to have severe disease down the road. So I think our policies across Western nations that didn't differentiate between people who had had and recovered from COVID and those who had not are invalid. They were, they, Pfizer should have been made to do studies in the people who have recovered. The US never differentiated these two groups. It Didn't matter how many times you've had COVID, you still are recommended to get the exact same number of vaccines. At the same time, I think vaccinating young children, particularly children, six months and five years and eight years, which did not occur in the initial 2021 wave, it didn't occur till much later. I think that that was almost entirely misguided. There is no credible evidence I've ever seen that vaccinating a healthy five-year-old for COVID-19 then improved health outcomes. And I certainly wouldn't recommend it going forward because not only do I not know it improves health outcomes for young children, the the virus is a different virus. So I'm not even sure this vaccination program makes sense for young children. And yet the U.S. CDC has added COVID-19 vaccination to the routine childhood immunization protocol. And I think by doing that, they are going to face a huge backlash because people and parents are just gonna decline all of the vaccines. And that's what we're seeing in America. By pushing some vaccines too hard in low risk populations, you will get a backlash. I also think it was extremely problematic in the United States that young college men, 20 years old, who had had and recovered from COVID-19 were mandated to get vaccine dose after dose, at least three doses at most universities, or they'll be disenrolled from school, even when those additional doses probably constituted net harm, because of the risk of myocarditis outweighs probably the risk of severe disease or hospitalization in that population so covid19 vaccines my paper is entitled a history of the pandemic's great scientific success it was a success we've never done anything so fast that's remarkable but flawed policy implementation we pushed it in the ultra low risk populations that benefits the companies but it doesn't benefit society okay so the development of vaccine is remarkable First dose lower the risk of death in older people. It has probably zero value for someone who hadn't recovered from COVID-19. Very little value to additional doses in young healthy people. Quickly, it was known to be harmful in young men and the kids vaccine program makes little sense. And America is pursuing a perpetual booster strategy. Every year, we're gonna get a new one. As far as I can tell, there's just no credible evidence at any age that that's valid. In Europe, typically European nations restrict it to above 50 or 65. But even then, I don't think you know in Europe that if you're 66, you've had three doses and had COVID twice, that you actually do benefit from this year's fall booster. I don't think you have that data. So I think even Europe is going ahead of the evidence here. In America, our current fall program is that no matter how many times you've had COVID and no matter how many shots you've gotten, the CDC recommends that any child six months and up should get a fall booster for COVID-19 which is simply transferring money to Pfizer and Moderna with no credible evidence generated. So I wanna make one point, 2020 before the vaccine was approved was actually the anti-vax year. Let me read you some quotes. This was when Trump was in office, quote, this was in nature, decades ago, vaccines developed against another coronavirus, feline infectious peritonitis virus, increased the cat's risk of developing the disease caused by the virus. Similar phenomenon had been seen in other for other vaccines. And this says, quote, don't rush to deploy COVID-19 vaccines and drugs without safety guarantees. There's an article by Zeke Emanuel and Paul Offit. Could Trump turn the vaccine into a campaign stunt? Quote, even if a vaccine generates antibodies, it does not prove it is effective at preventing infections. It makes it more likely, but serious and rare side effects might be missed. Now, improving antibodies is the basis for a yearly campaign. The rush to create COVID-19 vaccine may do more harm than good. In the British Medical Journal, a weekly effective vaccine can do more harm than good. Phil Krauss from the FDA. And yet the vaccine in children between the ages of six months and four years is only at best weekly effective in the randomized data submitted to FDA. And then finally, Trump's rush for a COVID vaccine could make it less likely to work. So when Trump was in office, media ran story after story about the dangers of vaccines. And In this paper, I've cataloged all of the quotes. And those quotes actually undermine public trust in vaccination. In 2020, according to Pew Research, from May to September, you have widespread declines by age, by education, by race, ethnicity and gender in would you get a COVID-19? Definitely or probably. And that was done by media, a media campaign that that when Trump was in office, the COVID-19 vaccine was considered dangerous, or at least that's what the media said. Now, I think the reason they did that was that people did not want the vaccine to come out before the November election in 2020. If Trump were able to generate a vaccine before the election, it might propel him to re-election, And that's something that nobody wants, you know, particularly people in the academy. And I think that that's reasonable. Trump was on TV and he kept saying that the vaccine is going to come out in October. He kept making these tall promises and he carried himself like somebody who didn't know anything what he was talking about. He said, put bleach in your veins and all these sorts of crazy. He's always. Hard to believe when you see him on TV. It's like watching a car accident. Okay, but even though he's bad, okay, in many ways, even though he was suboptimal, the role of scientists should be to not let him affect what we're doing. We cannot let him affect the development of the vaccine. We have to do it because it has a public good. We cannot time the vaccine just for the election because we have a duty to the public. That's what I think science should be about. Doesn't matter what Donald Trump does. But something happened around election day to the vaccine. Let me explain to what happened. Okay, this is something called the O'Brien-Fleming stopping boundary. What does this even mean? When you run a randomized control trial, like they did in the Pfizer vaccine study, you randomize 20,000 people to get the vaccine and 20,000 people to get a placebo. To get it does not the vaccine. And then the primary endpoint of the study is symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, which means you have to have symptoms like a cough, runny nose, fever, and then you swab yourself to see if it's SARS-CoV-2. So the primary endpoint is how many people have symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. And the study is basically designed to say that if you get the vaccine, you're less likely to get symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 than if you don't. In fact, we know that's true. both studies, Pfizer and Moderna, have 92 and 96% reduction in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. That was the study. The Moderna study actually had also a reduction in severe disease. Okay. So, but how do you actually do the randomized study? You randomize the two groups and they're blinded. You don't know who's who. And then you're at Pfizer and every time somebody says they have COVID-19, they swab themselves and they mail the swab to you. They mail it to the central testing facility. And they start testing them. And they say, okay, positive, negative, positive, negative, but they don't know if this person was on the vaccine or placebo arm. And after a certain amount of positive swabs, they say, okay, now's the time for the first look. Now's the time we look first and we see. And they use something like this, the O'Brien's funding stopping boundary, decide when to stop. When you look initially early on in a study, let's say the first look is gonna be after 32 cases. What kind of a difference do you need to see? We have 32 positive cases of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 in a 40,000 person randomized study. What kind of difference do you want to see before you say we're gonna halt this study? Would you be satisfied with, with 1715? There's 32, 17, 15 cases? I think you'd say, "Mm, 17, 15, that doesn't sound that good. You know, that sounds like kind of like a wash. What about 2012? 2012 sounds better, but it's still within the realm of chance. What about 26, six or 27, five? Now we say, okay, 27, five, if there are 27 cases in the placebo and only five in the intervention, that sounds pretty meaningful. You know, And there's actually a mathematical formula, it's called the O'Brien-Fleming stopping boundary shown here. This is the z-score, which is a measure of statistical persuasiveness. And what it basically shows you is that with fewer events, when you look early on in the study, you need a more pronounced z-score to declare stopping. And as you do more, more, more events, the z-score just needs to be outside of the significant range. In other words, if 10,000 people have COVID-19, and it's 5,500 in the placebo arm and 4,500 in the vaccine arm, you'd say, I bet the vaccine is doing something. But if it's only 2012, you're like, well, that's not good enough. So it kind of makes intuitive sense. As there's more events, the skew needs to be less of a skew before you call it a significant. Okay, this is a mathematical function. In the Pfizer vaccine trial, they pre specified the times they're gonna look. They're going to look at 32 events. They're going to look at 64 events. They're going to look at 100 and some events. And they have a skew pre-specified in the plan. And then they realized something. With the rate with which people were testing positive, they were going to reach 32 events probably in early October. And then they're going to have to test. And if it's 26.6 or 27.5, it's going to be a positive study. And that trial is going to be halted. So many people did not like that idea. And that's why Donald Trump went on TV and said it's going to come out in October because he had a strong inclination that the 30 events was going to happen in October, probably because Pfizer told him and he probably thought it was going to be a win. And so they organized a campaign. The campaign was organized to prevent that look at 32 events. And this was covered in MIT Technology Review by Antonio Rigaldo. This is one doctor's campaign to stop the COVID-19 vaccine before Election Day. How Eric Topol tried to kill off Trump's October surprise. And what they did was they took the 32 events and they petitioned Pfizer to submit a protocol amendment to move that event over here to 64. They didn't want the early look at 32. They wanted to have just enough events that it wouldn't occur until after November 6th to delay that vaccine approval. But every time you amend the statistical analysis plan of a study, you actually inflate the alpha error. You're actually creating a big problem in my opinion. And the skew you need at 64 events is less of a skew The O'Brien Fleming stopping boundary is mathematically the same thing. Whether you stop early or stop late, it doesn't give you any more statistical persuasiveness because you demand less of a difference between the two groups with more events, if that makes sense. So Pfizer CEO made the protocol change. They delayed looking at the swabs and that actually resulted in the press releases occurring a few days after the election day. The CEO of Pfizer says we didn't delay the vaccine results until after the election just for the election purposes, but there is no medical reason why you would make that protocol amendment doesn't make medical sense. It doesn't make statistical sense. They had a pre-planned statistical plan. It was a crisis. They should have looked at 32 events. There's no medical justification other than the fact that academic researchers did not want Donald Trump to get the win. The timeline was based on a plan that called for an outside panel to take a look at the efficacy data for 32 cases, but the companies and FDA later agreed on a protocol change that nearly doubled that number and delayed the review. Okay, quote, there is no evidence, however, the decision had anything to do with presidential politics and the companies flat out reject Trump's claims. What people believe is their business, but that's wrong. It has nothing to do with science. The O'Brien-Fleming stopping boundary is clear. By moving the number of events, you actually don't improve the statistical persuasiveness of the trial. So I think the mere act of switching to protocol is a problem. Changes to the plan based on outside information are problematic philosophically. Okay, so I'm going to pause there. I estimate that this is something that nobody wants to talk about. Everyone wants to talk about vaccine hesitancy among the right in America, the Republicans, which they have met, They have much of that, but nobody wants to talk about the vaccine hesitancy that was sown by the left when Trump was in office and this deliberate act of changing the number of events before they looked at the trial which in my mind has no scientific basis, and was only done to delay the results until after the election. And by doing that, I think there is a problem, because that winter wave was a huge amount of casualties in America. Had we rolled out vaccination three weeks before, we may have saved 40,000 lives. So basically, scientists were gambling with the lives of Americans in order to prevent Trump from being reelected. And I have no problem with preventing Trump from being reelected, don't get me wrong. But I do have a problem with twisting science to serve political purposes and not being upfront about what is going on. Kids vaccine. I think the timeline for the I'll skip this for the sake of time. I mean, one one point I want to make here is that the kids vaccine has a very problematic FDA approval process. Uh, They tried desperately to approve it, even though it had failed a non inferiority study, they gave Pfizer a third attempt for a third dose, Uh, extremely problematic. And We wrote this in 2021 that COVID vaccines for children should not get emergency use authorization. Emergency use authorization is an expedited pathway of the US FDA that is reserved for emergencies. There was absolutely an emergency among adults for COVID-19. There was never an emergency among children between the ages of five and 18, between the ages of six months and 18. Yes, 1,000 or 1,500 died in America over multiple seasons, that is unfortunately on par with seasonal influenza and does not constitute, in my mind, an emergency. Uh, it should have gone through the traditional regulatory approval process, and that would have had a higher level of evidence. And the other point I wanna make is that, do I have it in here? Uh, the top two officials at USFDA re- resigned when the Biden administration took over, Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss, because they felt that the Biden administration were pressuring them for a universal booster campaign. Okay, so some of my problems with the vaccine in the US, the same people who supported repeated emergency use authorizations for boosters based on antibody titers were previously critical of the use of antibody titers when Trump was in office. The press coverage of COVID-19 vaccines pre-vaccine was extremely critical of vaccines. We have news stories where they talked about long term side effects that are potentially possible. The moment Biden came into office, now they, they downplayed any concern. Now myocarditis was thought to be overblown they say the risk of myocarditis from covid is higher than the risk from the vaccine that's completely untrue in the subgroup of young men it's higher from the vaccine than the virus and the other problem is that no matter how many vaccine doses a young man gets he's still going to get the virus we're all going to get the virus eventually there's no way to halt the virus the virus will catch you at the end so you have much higher myocarditis by getting all the doses particularly moderna the trial had a delay in assessing the primary endpoint, which was done without medical justification just to subvert Trump. And I think vaccines were debuted in children based on poor evidence and may result in net harm. And vaccines do result in net harm for adolescent men who had COVID. We have a paper in the BMJ Medical Ethics. It's called COVID-19 Vaccine Boosters for Young Adults, A Risk-Benefit Assessment and an Ethical Analysis of the Mandates at Universities. And we basically conclude that it is likely net harmful in this age group. I myself was held to a vaccine mandate for the second and third dose, or I would be terminated from my university. I think that that was an overreach by the university. Yeah, this is the major figure. The blue and green bar showed you the risk of COVID-19 hospitalization prevented by booster using optimistic estimates. And the red bar shows you the rates of myo and pericarditis uh, from multiple series from the booster in young men. And you can see the red bar is just much bigger than the the difference between the green and blue bar. Very likely, we mandated a medical product on young men that has a net harm. And I think that's severely damaging for public health. We have another paper by Ben Knudsen, who's a medical student in GW, and this is called COVID-19 Vaccine Induced Myocarditis in Young Men, a Systematic Review. And it basically makes the point that there are many policymakers who say the risk of of myocarditis from the virus is worse than the vaccine. But what we find is they often deliberately obscure the statistics So here. Let me walk you through this figure. These look at different estimates of the myocarditis rate per 100,000 people uh, based on stratifiers. What do I mean? Zero stratifiers is like we looked at everyone who got the vaccine and we say, how many people have myocarditis out of everyone who gets the vaccine? And it's like 2.4 out of 100,000. It's like, not so bad, that's low, but that's everybody who got it. But what if you were just to look at four stratifiers like Let's just look at men between the ages of 16 and 19, and let's just look at dose two, and let's look at Pfizer and Moderna separately. And what you see is the rates are sky high, much higher, if you look at two or three stratifiers. In other words, if you combine men and women, if you combine old people and young people, then of course myocarditis looks rare. But if you just focus on young men getting Moderna dose two or Pfizer dose two, it looks really bad. And so this is a way that the old saying lying with statistics, the proponents of boosting everybody say, well, look at how low myocarditis is. But what they're not saying is that, yeah, it's low because an 80 year old woman does not have any myocarditis from the vaccine. It's all in young men. Okay. So let's just look at young men and let's treat people differently based on their age and gender and the product and they don't want to do that. So we have many you know, studies that actually underestimate the risk because they don't use stratifiers and that's what we prove in our paper mandates, I think this is where public health really made the biggest mistake, we should never have mandated this vaccine. So a few things one, um, we need to be very clear on the ethics of mandates, you can only mandate somebody else get a healthcare intervention, if that person doing that benefits third parties. For instance, if I have high blood pressure, and I take a blood pressure medication, that might benefit me. But if I told you I don't want to take a blood pressure medicine, you can't force me to take a blood pressure medicine. I'm allowed to take risks with my own health. I'm allowed to drink 10 drinks a day and I'm allowed to eat at McDonald's. You know, we don't use healthcare mandates to improve my own health. If we did, then, you know, we might make people do exercise every day and we might come to their house and, you know, confiscate the cigarettes and and we might come and, you know, make them eat what we want them to eat. You know, so we don't use mandates typically for personal health behaviors. Mandates are used for the benefit of others. We mandate MMR vaccine, because we know if we get a certain high enough, we'll actually extinguish the measles epidemic. We mandate rubella because of pregnant women. You know? So we mandate it for the benefit of third parties. There has to be a benefit to third parties, one, and that benefit has to be so great, the loss of autonomy to the individual is justified. Now the COVID-19 vaccine never met this threshold. Not only that, we didn't even study it properly. So you could imagine in the initial Pfizer study, if the people randomized on both arms, we took a thousand people on vaccine and a thousand people on placebo, and we made their family members swab themselves every day. And we looked at those swabs over time. Then we would actually be able to answer the question of whether or not the vaccine prevents transmissions in households. But that was not required by FDA. They didn't make the company do it. And of course the company didn't wanna do that. So we had never proven that vaccination actually slows transmission. That's one piece of data. The second piece of data, By June 2020, sorry, June 2021, there was a gathering in Provincetown, Massachusetts, a party of many gay men where vaccination rates were in the high 97%. And it had widespread COVID-19 breakthrough in that place. So we knew by the summer of 2021, that no matter, even if you've been vaccinated, everybody, COVID-19 can just spread through everybody. It doesn't slow, it doesn't halt transmission. And so when the Biden administration implemented the fall 2021 mandate, they did it at a time where one, it was known vaccinated people could transmit. And I think that's problematic. They never had evidence that forcing people to be vaccinated would benefit third parties. And that is a violation, I think, of traditional medical ethics. And this vaccine should not have been mandated, even though I did get it. You know, I think people should be free to choose, but you can't compel other people to do it. And finally, there was a private decision made by the Biden administration discussed by Paul Offit, whether or not they should give credit to people who had already had COVID-19 and in a private three to two vote, the decision was made not to give them any credit. So they have to get vaccinated too. So what you had in America was doctors and nurses and, and police officers and firefighters who had had COVID and recovered, who were fired from their job for not getting the vaccine. And that to me is very problematic. One, because I'm not sure that vaccine dose would help them. And two, I'm certainly not sure it helped anyone else. And so we use the brute force of public health and the police state to fire people uh, for no public health benefit. And I think that that decision alone is going to obliterate public health in the next quarter century. I think there's a growing group of people who recognize that this was an overreach. Uh, And I think it's a big problem. Okay, now I just talk about masking for a few minutes and then then i'll wrap up the united states went beyond europe they went beyond the uh, european cdc and the american academy of pediatrics and the cdc they recommended that kids as young as two wear cloth masks for 10 hours a day in daycare and those masks were implemented with you know with the power of the state behind it they're allowed to take it off for naps adult randomized control trials pre-pandemic showed no benefit to community masking that's the conclusion of Cochrane. that's the right conclusion Randomized control trials during COVID-19 also showed no benefit to cloth masking. Cloth masking doesn't work in adults. It certainly doesn't work in two-year-olds. I think it's ludicrous to do it in a two-year-old. I think it's a complete abuse by American authorities. Uh, And I think there's only one reason why it happened. Donald Trump didn't wear the mask. And so anyone who doesn't like Donald Trump knows he's always wrong. So we got to wear the mask extra hard. And that's, I think, the basis of the policy. The people on those committees, CDC and AAP, Strongly opposed him and they wanted to go as hard the other direction as they could and that's taking it down to two years old I implored them many times not to do it to two. I thought that was the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life I think Fauci, you know, of course famous for his mixed messaging on masks He initially said they didn't work then said they did work I think he was telling the truth the first time that was the consensus of the available evidence the CDC director went on T went to Congress and she testified that we couldn't have studied masks in kids because there's no equipoise we know masking children works. We wrote an article in Public Health and Practice where we say, does equipoise exist for masking kids? We almost want to argue that it doesn't exist because we know it can't possibly work, especially for two years old. But certainly the mere presence of people who think it does work and think it doesn't work is enough to create equipoise, that is equipoise. The US actually has extended the decision to mask children as young as two in high transmission beyond 2023. It's gonna continue indefinitely, there's no end in sight. I wrote this article in 2021 at the Atlantic magazine. It was called The Downsides of Masking Young Students Are Real. The educational cost to face coverings is far better established than the benefits of the mask mandates. And here I'm talking not just about two-year-olds, but eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds. And this article led to a widespread outcry against the Atlantic, and I think hundreds of people canceled their subscription to the Atlantic, angry that this was dangerous misinformation. When in fact, it was probably pretty accurate. All right, I'm going to skip that. <clears throat> I want to talk about this study for a second, then I'll, then I'll make a few closing remarks. Mm-hmm. This is a study that people cite as evidence that masking does work, and it is, in fact, a cluster-randomized trial in Bangladesh. Unfortunately, it has one problem in it that's such a big problem. This is actually not a randomized study and it's not useful at all, and the investigators waste everybody's study time. And it was published in Science Magazine. Okay, here's the study. They went to Bangladesh and they took 300 matched villages. They took villages that were the same size as other villages in rural Bangladesh. At baseline, nobody had COVID-19. The villages were matched based on size and a whole bunch of other factors. And then they went to one group of villages and they said, here, here's a mask, a free mask. We're gonna give it to you. And if you have any symptoms of COVID-19, you call this number and we'll we'll have somebody come out to you or mail a kit out to you and we'll take your blood. And we'll look to see if you have antibodies against COVID-19. So the primary endpoint of the study is you call me when you have symptoms, symptomatic, and we'll measure the zero prevalence, the blood antibodies of COVID-19. In the other group of villages, they go to the village and they ask people, you call me when you have symptoms, but they're not giving you a mask. Okay, so this is a study: a randomized trial of giving out masks and encouraging people to wear masks. Cluster randomized, they're doing village to village. Cluster randomized is much smarter than individual randomized study because people were making the claim. That me wearing the mask doesn't protect me, but it protects John from getting it, from me to spread to him. So if you randomize a whole village, you can measure both the spread of virus on the way in and the spread on the way out. So that's why it's a cluster randomized study. It has four endpoints in the study. The primary endpoint was symptomatic SARS-CoV-2, what I told you about. The secondary endpoint, which was a much better endpoint, is just asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2. In other words we randomly pick people in villages and we test their blood for antibodies and that has no bias you don't have to call and report we're just looking at the prevalence of COVID-19 in the population that's the secondary endpoint the third endpoint was how often people wear masks okay that's an intermediary endpoint and the fourth was how often people just complain they have runny nose and symptoms the primary endpoint this is the primary endpoint in the control villages 0.76 percent had symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 three quarters of one percent the cloth mask villages It's the same number, not significant. The surgical mask villages, they do have a reduction, 11%. So this is why people say community masking works. Significant study. But I haven't got to the problem yet. Cloth mask failed to the first endpoint. The second endpoint, the best endpoint, has never been reported by investigators. They have never reported this endpoint in any trial publication, this random sampling. The third endpoint is intermediary, and the fourth endpoint, I think, is just bias-susceptible. If you wear a mask, you might report symptoms differently than if you don't. Okay, I'm going to skip that. Okay, so researchers who looked at this study did this nice reanalysis of the paper and they found, I think, what's the biggest problem. All right, when you do a randomized control trial there's two parts to it, typically. There's blinding and then there's concealment. What is blinding? If I randomize you to like Olaparib or sugar pill, blinding means that the person who swallows the pill, they don't know that it's Olaparib or they don't know that it's sugar pill. So the participants are blinded to the intervention. The doctor can be blinded to the intervention too. The doctor can say, I don't know if this person got a lab or sugar pill. I'm going to take care of them the same. So that is blinding is about when the study is running, are the participants and the doctors unaware of treatment assignment. Concealment means at the moment of randomization, do you not know which arm you're going into? And concealment is really important because if you don't conceal a randomized study, people may go into one arm more than the other arm if they know they're gonna get something, you know? It's a bias that could exist. In the old days, sometimes doctors would hold the envelope up to the light and they could see, is it placebo or experimental arm, and they could pass out envelopes differently. In the modern world of digital randomization, we don't have that concealment problem anymore. This study has a huge concealment problem. The, The people signed up differently. Okay, let me see if I have it. Okay, so let me walk you through this figure. Well, I'll, I'll, Let me explain it and then I'll walk through the figure. In one arm of this study, the control arm, a hundred thousand people signed up to be a part of the study, masking. In the intervention arm, a hundred and ten thousand people signed up to the study. There's 10% more people signing up in the mask arm than the non-mask arm. And that difference is actually the biggest difference in the whole study. This is a... This is a uh, analysis where basically what the authors are doing is they're simulating the study many, many times under the null hypothesis that there's no difference. And they're showing you the symptomatic zero positive rate that they're calling positive is here, you know? It it is kind of, it looks like it's, you know, a little bit outside due to, it, it looks like it doesn't occur all the time due to chance. The rate of any symptoms is out here. It looks like it is pretty significant, like reporting symptoms, but the consenting population size is way the hell out here. It's way different. It's way, way higher in the group that got masks. If I do a randomized study and one arm has way more people than the other arm, why is that the case? It's randomized. The group that got masks, why are they getting an extra 11th person for every 10 people on the control arm? Does anyone have a guess? They what? They moved. No, Oh, okay, why would they move to the village? yeah okay you're very, you got it but if the answer is because they got masks okay so what they did in this study was when they drive up to the villages getting masks they pull up in like a big truck with boxes in the back and they got all the boxes and they're like oh do you want to sign up to my study and people see all the boxes and they say 11 people say yeah i'll sign up when they go to control villages they come out with a clipboard and say you want to sign up to my study and 10 people say yes but that 11th person doesn't say yes because they don't see a free box of stuff And so what you have is it's not a randomized study, actually. In one arm, you get 10 people. In the other arm, you get 11 people. And that 11th person is probably a different person. That's a person who only says yes when they see a free box of stuff, and they don't say yes when they don't see a free box of stuff. It's not a random person, it's a different person. And then the question is, does that different person pick up the phone and call you when they feel sick at the exact same rate as the first 10 people? And I would argue, no, they probably are not as altruistic. They're probably more likely to do things only if they see a benefit to themselves. They may be less likely to submit to your blood draw for your Western, you know, randomized study. And I think this whole study, the biggest bias in this study is that all of these endpoints can be explained by the fact that it's just a a different some, you know, there's an extra 10,000 different people in one arm than the other arm. And so I actually think it's an invalid study. It doesn't prove anything to me. And if you were to replicate, we should have replicated this in the United States and in the Netherlands and in, 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 in UK, we would have gotten at the real effect, which is probably pretty close to null. And I say all this, even if you assume this effect is real, it's almost a, tri- it's a trivial effect. It's very small. Okay, I'm going to pause there and give you some conclusion slides. <laughs> I just want to make one point that we published a lot of these papers on COVID 19 policy. During the heat of the pandemic, we tried to put them on Med, RxIV, and SSRN, the preprint servers. Those servers are supposed to post any scientific article, they're not supposed to review it, they're just supposed to make sure it adheres to scientific norms. And the preprint servers repeatedly declined to post our articles, critical of mask mandates, critical of uh, observational studies to justify vaccinating children, critical of uh, (coughs) confidence interval interpretation, statistical errors by the CDC, that COVID-19 vaccine paper was removed from a preprint server, and they were all removed for the reason that they said it was, they need to be cautious about posting (coughs) medical content. So we did have, I think, quite active censorship on scientific servers. You could only present one narrative, at a time of unprecedented debate and chaos. Okay, I'm gonna skip these things. All right, I'm gonna give you some closing remarks. Um, My closing remarks on this topic are pretty simple, which is I think that lockdowns was a, a very bad strategy. I think a lot of people think that. I think it was a violation of Western democratic norms, a violation of Traditional pandemic principles, I think there's almost no evidence that actually changed behavior. People were already staying at home voluntarily. Lockdown may have resulted in the police force being deployed on a handful of individuals, but in the grand scheme of population mobility it didn't change much. I think border closure was horrific. Uh, it didn't slow a single variant around the world. It just disrupted travel and commerce. I think everything we did to children was horrific closing their schools, preventing them from playing, preventing them from having education in the United States, having that prolonged, forcing them to be vaccinated in many districts uh, with a vaccine that has very poor credible evidence. Uh, I think that was all atrocious. In the United States, we closed beaches. We took the rims off basketball hoops. We chained off playgrounds. We put sand in uh, skating rinks so people couldn't skate outside. This is all hysteria, irrational fear, did nothing to combat the virus. When we did to get a good vaccine in the United States, we didn't focus on the nursing homes. We gave the vaccine to a 20 year old resident in medicine. I think that's crazy. In the United States, we deployed it in healthcare workers who are young and healthy, many of whom had COVID-19. And we didn't prioritize the elderly who should have gotten it first. And then the few people who didn't want to get it, we fired them from their jobs when they didn't get it, which I think is a breach of trust in society and in medical ethics. And now we have a system where we're telling people they have to get their six month old vaccinated every year for the rest of their lives. Uh, I didn't talk about Pax livid, but I think the evidence for Pax livid is terrible. It has no positive trial in people who have been vaccinated. So when you look at the pandemic response, I think the most plausible conclusion is that it was motivated by two things. One fear people get very scared, especially when we feel our own lives are at risk and Two, the people who had no advocates, like children, were the ones who were trampled on the most. And then three, the corporations saw a great opportunity to make a lot of money. Pfizer made hundred billion billion from their vaccines and Pax in the pandemic. And we have not asked them to generate credible evidence that dose after dose after dose is necessary. I certainly think the first dose was life-saving, I certainly will never get another dose again. I think there's absolutely no benefit. I got at least two doses against my will or I would've been terminated by my university. And that to me is a problem. And it was a problem that universities didn't have debates on school closure. It's a problem universities are still not talking about this openly. And I think that the gentleman asked a question yesterday about trust in science. All of the things I talked about with polo and screening and these things pale in comparison to this pandemic. We have a tremendous erosion in trust in public trust in scientists, that is just going to get deeper in the next 10 years. I don't know how deep it's going to go, but it's going to be one of the biggest societal problems we've ever faced in Western society. I think we should never have used the police state to enforce public health. That's not consistent with the principles of public health. It's antithetical to what public health stood for. We learned from a totalitarian regime in China, and that was a great error in the West. Uh, and so how do we recover from that? I think one it needs a real accountability i think what they did in the uk recently is not real accountability and then it needs apologies and it needs a commitment for scientists to do science and not to play politics so those are my thoughts on this topic thank you all for listening that
1: was a great talk
2: Professor Passat, thanks again for your uh, excellent presentation. Um, just one other remark I think I'd like to have your thoughts on. Um, those big companies share their results with shareholders before they are actually shared with scientists, before they can be scrutinized. And then that goes into the press and then actually the whole momentum is already in place. What's, what's your opinion on that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So whether it's COVID drugs or cancer drugs, the companies control the framing of all the results. They put out a press release, they get their you know, key opinion leaders on Twitter to amplify that. And I would even go further and argue that many scientific conferences are really held just to let the companies uh, create the narrative. In oncology, we have a recent trial of Vidote and pembrolizumab, and it got a standing ovation at the conference. Not a single person has read the paper because it's not published yet. So here we have standing ovation. No one can read the paper. No one has seen the data. We've just seen a, whatever they want to show us. And what happens is, people already become entrenched in their ideas. They think it's good and great. And if later you find some big problem with the study, it's harder to change their mind. So I think the current system does allow the companies to shape the narrative around all their products. And one of those things is the press releases they put out to you know, meet the rules of SEC.
1: <laughs> I, I was wondering um this is afterwards during the covid pandemic
0: what were your opinions publicly you also vote. were you vocal about this did you do anything then because afterwards it's easier yeah after is easy did i do anything then for a long time pinned on my twitter was the 210 op-eds i wrote in real time I wrote op-eds from day... I mean, you can go back and pull it. I mean, I have a list on Twitter. But basically, you know, in April 2020, we wrote op-eds saying, you know, let's listen to scientists with diverse viewpoints and stat. And the next month we wrote, COVID-19 is a supernova. It's going to affect all aspects of health. Let's be careful we don't have these problems. By the fall of 2020, I said school closure was a huge mistake. In the spring of 2020, when DeSantis reopened schools in Florida, I cheered him on. But, you know, Fauci actually went on TV and said DeSantis was reckless and playing games with life. And then in the vaccines came out, we wrote the BMJ paper critical of kids vaccines. We wrote papers on, so lots of things in real time, lots of op-eds. What was the reaction? I think the hard part is it was incredibly acrimonious. So one thing is I haven't disclosed, but actually my political leanings is I'm on the political left. Actually, I'm a progressive. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And to me, what was most painful about the pandemic was that people who I aligned myself with, progressives, we're the ones who should have pushed for kids to stay in school. We're the ones who should have pushed for minority population. We're the ones who should have fought for the underserved. And we were the ones who supported lockdown, school closure, the regressive, brutal policies that you would have expected from the hard right. And so I was incredibly disappointed with progressives, because they did it only to thwart Trump, in my opinion. They have no evidence for any of these policies. So I was disappointed. And then I think that when you're a member of the tribe, when you're in group and you criticize the group, you face the worst punishment, which was, you know, a lot of criticism. And so, you know, people were upset with, uh, you know, our paper in the Atlantic. And recently they got a talk of mine canceled because they said, you know, I, 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 I didn't support masking children, that's dangerous, you know? Well, I would say I didn't support masking children because it's unproven, you know? And so, I, I, but they got a talk of mine canceled. So I think that everyone who spoke on the pandemic paid a price, well, even the people who spoke out in favor of lockdowns, I think they paid a price. The people who spoke out against paid a price. Uh, I think we have to do better in science to allow people to have argued this. My last point. If Harvard and Stanford had had debates and said we will bring somebody who's pro-lockdown and anti-lockdown, have them debate, it would have made everyone allow them to have some, you know, acknowledge that this is an academic issue. The real failure of the universities, in my opinion, and the reason they fail is the people who run those universities are no longer real academics. For the last 20 years, we have hired people who are just good at business. They know how to grow endowments and get donors to give money and sell their IP to pharmaceutical companies. They are not academics. They don't have real principles. The principles of the academy have existed for 2000 years. I don't think those principles are in their bones. The Stanford president resigned because his data is all fabricated. You saw that recently. Mark Tesler Levine. He had many papers with fraudulent figures. He had to resign you know, a couple weeks ago. So I think we have presidents who are not scholars. They don't care about discourse and they have lost the purpose of the academy and they are chasing corporate profits. And that's unfortunately what universities need to you know, survive. And that to me means at times of crisis, they do a terrible job and they did the worst job. So I blame them more <coughs> than Thank you,
1: very much. Thank you Of course, we did everything better in the-
2: I'm <laughs> I get this as a title, the same title as Mr. Prasad. Uh, from a point of view, carousel so uh, let's get to it. Uh, no disclosures. Uh, actually, it's not really completely true because we have grants with one researcher that to to do this without showing the preliminary. Um, so, in the beginning, uh, 2019 December, these uh, messages came through about COVID new disease, SARS, in China, and we were following it, and uh, we kept following it and started to prepare, because we thought there's something going on that isn't all the way okay, and then the question is what evidence did we have, and we didn't have any of course because we didn't know anything about SARS, but the evidence we did have was Spanish flu, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about later about the evidence more than influenza vaccination, which we do, which is actually, we'll know about the evidence for that, what well that is concerned, but we need to look at that as well. So the evidence was Spanish true and we didn't have any adequate models. We don't have any adequate models for anybody, but especially not for smaller countries, little islands. The only model that we have, and we don't know if it was adequate or not, it said that you only need to import a couple of cases t- t- and. That's the only evidence we had, which wasn't evidence but it was the model, right? So, let's go back to the Spanish for a second. I found this slide that I had presented in 2007 at a national conference about pandemic preparedness. And this was actually a CDC type kind of slide, if I recall. Um, so, The goals of mitigation in a pandemic was the idea is to, four goals, delay or flatten the peak, reduce the burden at the peak, reduce the total number of cases, and also, especially (coughs) by time. And the by time thing was important for us because we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was going to happen on a small island relatively uh, uh, limited resources limited capacities especially in your intensive care units and in your hospital so we thought we need to buy time and see what's happening before we make some other kind of decisions that was actually the motivation and this is again the pandemic flu in 1918 but this is based on real data this is a geographic example of comparison between what happened in st louis happened in Philadelphia. In St. Louis they did take mitigation um, uh, measures and they had, they succeeded in reaching their goal and in Philadelphia they did not and they had an enormous outbreak, an enormous death toll as well this is what happened in 1918 and this is what we thought we were looking at as well we had no other reason, we had no other things to look at so, and I actually in 2007 I was surprised when I looked at this last night. I put up this slide and I said well we need to consider the possibility because we are on an island so we have that possibility to close it off and see what happens before we do anything else. I actually said that in 2007. I think I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. and <laughs> you need to take a couple of measures if you want to do that so you need a stockpile, you need to make sure that you are not dependent on anybody else if you actually do decide to close off so this was all set in 2007 and lo and behold on this one I put up also the art of NOAA and influenza also went along, right? so there you go um, yeah it's not me so let's go now to go to the real data at least of the WHO and this is what was reported according to different regions, you see that in 2020, alongside 2020, the amount started creeping up, Dettles cre- crept up as well, we know that from a different slide, and this is what was going on around the rest of the world. But because we took the measures in Curaçao, this is our epidemic. So what did we do? Um, because we were waiting, seeing what was happening, and in March of 2020, we had the first imported case from the Netherlands, coming from carnival and, and after carnival in and, and, and the south of, Hoth, right? They were the first people coming in. It started spreading. That was also our first death case um, uh, uh, immediately afterwards. And then we took the decision: if this is going to go that way, that rapidly, also seeing what was happening in the rest of the world, we decided. Well, I had to give the advice, and believe me, that was just about the most difficult thing I did, is to give the advice that let's close off and see what happens, to build up the capacity to be able to deal with the pandemic, which is what we did. Now, um, Professor Brasset, so we did that, we closed off, and lo and behold, there were no cases. So you say there is no evidence, but there actually is. If live on a small island. We got a wave of the original. This is Alpha, this is Delta, this is Omicron. This is also proof also of what you said, the first doses of vaccine by Delta, because we had increasing numbers, increasing deaths. It went on a really steep scale. That happened in the rest of the world as well. And we started vaccinating right after this. And it dropped down uh, very steeply. So we know there is evidence for that first doses. The rest agree with it. Um, but that's another debate. So we took some measures, uh, travel restrictions, community mitigation. Uh, I talked about it earlier, personal hygiene stuff. So how did that pass out? Pass out, pan out? And about the travel restrictions, uh, you cannot maintain that over a long period of time. You do it for a short period to try to give yourself some time, but you will have to open up. You're part of the world, you have to keep on going. And why was it such a difficult decision? Because when you close down the island, you know what it's going to do to the rest of your island economically. You know that you're going to cause lots of poverty. You're going to cause lots of jobs. You're going to put people in problems. And that's exactly what happened. And that's one reason why you need to think about it really hard. Going to do that kind of stuff. So, it was a problem. Um, so, you can take these decisions, but you need to have a follow up plan to when do you open up again and how long you maintain. The same thing goes for other types of things, like mitigations in the home, like distancing, avoid crowding, stuff like that. But let's talk about the personal hygiene things, like masking, etc. This was actually a guidance from the WHO, not particularly my friends, but This was your guidance on the 29th of January, 2020. And they said, a medical mask is not required as no evidence is available of usefulness to protect non safe persons. This is WHO. They said it doesn't work. No evidence. Like Professor Prasad, no evidence, we don't. So this was also a line. Our line in the beginning of the pandemic was, there is no evidence. But then, The world went berserk because we got all of these images from China, from Japan, from Korea, from also eastern parts of Europe where everybody and their brother were wearing masks. And it became a popular thing. People started making it their own private business. They started fabricating cloth masks and they were selling it. In Curacao, the police, I never saw so much police before in my life, but the police had masks with their logo on top of the mask or ambulance services, it became a fashion kind of thing right? so people were going completely berserk and everybody was wearing masks and they kept asking us in press conference well, how, why aren't you saying thing about masks? and I kept on saying well, because the truth is you, know, you can wear it if you want I'm not telling you not to, I mean I actually am but there is no evidence that it works and increasingly more and more people started using masks so whether we liked it or not it became policy, not because we said so, but because it was happening. And politicians said, well, if everybody's doing it, we cannot say no any longer. So it became policy. And the backlash we have, Professor present is a lack of capacity of doing any research to even talk about if there's evidence or not. I'll come back to that later. So this is what happens, and that's what you said as well. It's fear driven people see things, they copy, they do this stuff, they think we need to do something and that becomes policy whether you want it or not, not based on evidence Uh, The Cochrane Review according to me it said something a little bit different, but maybe I'm uh, mistaken but uh, there was a high bias of the trials that they looked at when they looked at the systemic review and there's uncertainty about the effect but. There is also uncertainty of the evidence, so it might even be that the limited effect that they see might be different from what it is really, because you cannot really judge based on the on the biased, and bad evidence that there was. So, but the pooled results of RCTs did show did not show a clear reduction in respiratory virus, um, and there were no clear differences between using surgical masks or N95 masks. That so, we're telling everybody all this stuff, but the truth is, there was no clear evidence. Then the high, hand hygiene number We were telling people that remember before, if you've touched lots of surfaces or came into contact with things that you're not sure of if there was any droplets on it or not, before you touch your face or your eyes, your nose, your mouth, you're supposed to wash. You should do that for yourself. It's yourself that you're protecting, But it became uh, hysteria. People were standing outside of the supermarkets and you couldn't come in if you refused to hand sanitize. People take this and they turn it around. They make it an obligation. We never made it an obligation. We gave people an advice. It was not an obligation to wash your hands. It's your business. It's the best thing you can do for yourself. You're not protecting anybody else from it. How about this, you go into the supermarket. You're forced to hand sanitize in front of the supermarket. Then you go in, you grab the garage, right? The basket, whatever it is, that hundreds of people have touched before you. You have no idea what they did with their hands before they touched it, by the way. So you touch these things, then you pick up something, item from the shelf. You say, no, I don't want this one, I want the other. And you're picking up all this stuff, what's the idea here, you're supposed to hand sanitize after every single thing that you picked up does that make any sense? it doesn't you try to tell people this in press conferences, they keep on doing it there were fights outside the supermarkets, you know there were big deal people were, were refused entrance because they didn't hand sanitize it's something that they're supposed to do for themselves, not for you so this was also going on so it's the same type of hysteria that we have with masses. we had this with hand sanitization as well Alright, so, school closure, your favorite subject um, <laughs> There was no evidence of spread by children that was used as an argument We were saying this, we were looking at our numbers and relatively very few children were being affected with SARS-CoV and they weren't becoming very ill either. So we were saying there's no reason to close the schools But, what happened in reality? The teachers started protesting because they were scared and they started saying, look, we have a very high amount of people who have diabetes who have hypertension and I kept saying, yes, but you're not the only one the entire island has lots of diabetes and hypertension, right? We're all stuck with the same problems not only you, not yours, not a single out group that has more than anybody else but they were scared and they decided they're not coming to work and then the school board said we can't keep the schools open because nobody's coming. So these kids are coming to school and I have nobody to take care of the kids. So this is the reason why schools were closed. Not because of policy, because we said this is going to have a negative impact. The kids will be home. Parents have to go work. There's nobody to take care of the kids. They're leaving them there by themselves. Nobody can look out for them. They're being isolated. Not all of the schools or all of the kids, especially from lower social economic classes, They don't have any internet. They can't do schooling outside. All of this was happening. So all of these negative impacts, the negative spiral of social domestic impact were enormous. But we knew this. But this was not policy. This was not because of us. So again, fear driven creates policy out of itself. Because politicians tend to go with the majority. Don't fight them, because if not, you lose. Right? You lose votes. So it becomes policy, but not because of our suggestions to do this, that, or the other. And then you're in an impossible position that you have to... How do you say this in English? Prat at rest. How do you say justify. this? Justify. Justify. Yeah, you have to justify something that is basically unjustified. It's a problem. And you have to choose between yes or no or how you do this, maintaining your integrity, but not creating more panic outside. So there's a problem there. So I want to share this preliminary. We've done, together with Professor Deitz and uh, uh, Jay, who just went back, Professor Jay Bailey from Utrecht, and Meryl uh, and Ellie, uh, researchers that work with us at the Pure Environmental and Health Research Institute, we have a grant from Zona and Wave. Am I saying this right, Ashley? We have a grant. From Zon- MVP. Zon- MVP. Thank you. Uh, Zon- <laughs> MW. Um, uh, uh, so we, we have a grant that was aimed at looking at how uh, vulnerable groups in Curaçao, Aruba, and St. Martin coped with COVID. How did they fare? And this is not a quantitative study, it's a qualitative one. And why is that important? Because the numbers don't tell you the reason why people do what they do. You need to speak to them, you need to understand their circumstances, for you to understand why this is happening, why they did this, what happened to them. So this was a study carried out in Curacao, and and these are preliminary results. I don't even know if I'm allowed to share it, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, So about risk communication. So there were difficulties balancing the accurate information while taking into account Enormous amount of emotional and psychological needs among the people that were suffering because of lockdowns, because of all this stuff. There was also enormous influx of information from various sources which gave rise to misinformation that was going on in between what we were doing. Um, Different languages, older adults not being able to navigate all these platforms where all of this information was coming in. So this took place. What about the experiences about the information? So again, we're talking about spread of fake news. Misinformation played a significant role in shaping people's uh, uh, perceptions and actions. And Facebook, that was your main deal. That's where you got your information from, not from the government. Facebook ruled, and if there's something they're shouting stuff, that becomes the rule. Then everybody believes Facebook. They don't believe what you're saying, they believe something else whether that's scientifically based or not, usually not Um, but then someone like Professor Prasad said they could start asking questions, well what about you? what what are you talking about, right? uh, Access to healthcare, big problems Um, disruptions in the routine uh, limitations of healthcare by migrants because they were not insured uh, older adults had challenges to get access to medicine. They couldn't get out of the house, they were scared also, they were scared to go to the GPs because they thought there's going to be a lot of people there, or whatever, I'm going to be affected there, I don't dare. So healthcare was at risk, delayed response to the doctors, fear of getting affected, when you pay a doctor a visit, all of these things took place. Uh, support for vulnerable groups, they needed support and everything. Community support for uh, well-being, family support, uh, food, you name it especially again in migrants and people that were undocumented and people that were unassured. Uh, Loss of job, as I said earlier, because if you take measures and everybody is suffering and your economy goes to pieces, then this happens. People lose their jobs, they lose their income, they have no access to anything, they don't have no food, Uh, uh, and especially migrants. I can tell you stories that we faced when we were doing the contact tracing. There there are people who you spoke to, they understood. They understood what you were trying to tell them. Like, you know, okay, you have COVID, we know this. This is what you need to do. And they said, yeah, I know, I agree with you, I understand what you're telling me, but man, if I don't work, I can't pay my rent. If I can't pay my rent, they kick me out of the house with my family with COVID and all. So what do you want me to do? I'm going to work. I will work, regardless of what you're telling me. I need to work because if I don't, I'm stuck. And then... I heard myself say that for the first time, as ultimate, ultimate, <laughs> as a, ultimate remedy. Uh, well, at least you wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do I have to tell him something. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got this answer back. He said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> he actually said, are you out of your mind? Look, my work is I transport people. I'm like a kind of taxi chauffeur. I said, oh, that's great. You know, sit in the car with lots of people and cough, you know, that's going to really help a lot. And then he said, look, if I wear a mask, these days if I wear a mask, everybody thinks I have COVID. I said, well you do. He said, yeah, but they don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to wear a mask. I am going to work and I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. And what can I tell him? No, you're wrong. It's not okay. No, it isn't okay, but I get it. I get it. What else is he supposed to do? What about this other guy? I, think I was reminded because they showed the video. This other guy that I spoke to, um, he had COVID. And his job was, he was a barber. And a barber under, like we say, a puppy mantle, under the tree. So all of his friends and family, they used to come to him at home in his garden, and he would, he would cut their hair under the tree. So I said, well, you know, you have to take care because like you're, you're infectious. He said, yeah, man, but that's my income. I'm going to keep on cutting hair of people and I'm not going to wear the mask. This is what people do and think, and you understand them. Don't tell them, oh, I can tell them on the phone, it going not help. So, this is the other thought I had when I heard you, Professor Cassatt. Boy, am I glad I wasn't living in the United States. <laughs> I mean, I don't believe, even though people thought so, I don't believe we ever told people we forced people to get vaccinated. We told them it was a free choice. We gave them advice, especially when we talk about the first vaccine, right? It was up to you. But this is what we think is probably can help you out. But there was no force, and there was no, there were people who did interpret it differently and didn't want and wanted to give you out. And we tried to do something about that, saying it also in the press conferences. This is not the idea. Your people have a right to do what they want. But we can offer them the best advice possible, and that's it. But it was never a forcing moment, as far as I can remember. Uh, So there were impacts on households, like you talked about already, impact on their routine daily lives, participation in education, stakeholders, uh, challenges in relation to access to the online environment, like like you said. The point being, you can take these measures, but what it turns out, especially if you look at all the problems people were facing afterwards, it needs to be for a limited time. You can't keep this up for months and months and months. So when I hear Professor Prasad say, that they did this for 18 months in the United States. that That's, well, That, that I don't feel so bad anymore, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, it was long enough, but it wasn't 18 months. Um, but, that, but that is a no-no. So if you're not capable of doing something what you think initially is a good move, but if you don't realize along the way very soon that it has its negative impacts if you keep it up too long and don't do something about that,
1: then you're wrong
2: for it then something goes alright, and then it's not ok um, and of course domestic violence comes out, right? We force people to stay home, they don't have anywhere to go they get stressed out, everything is on top of each other this is what happens so, think about it we did it for a different reason but did it all work out well and the answer is, not for everybody else. not necessarily so if you keep it up too long, it starts working against you All right, I want to talk about the leadership of the WHO, my big friends. And let's go back a while. Remember Ebola? There was an outbreak and then they said every country in the world has to make sure that you have enough PPEs. Everyone! Only there weren't enough. And the PPEs that there were, they were all sent to Liberia, Sierra Leone, yeah, they were sent to the hotspots, of course they were sent there, because that's where they needed them most. But if you shout that everybody has to take care of it, we were vilified alive by the entire press, came to the Day and said, you are killing our population because you don't have PPEs. The, the a priori chance that you get evil on Kurosawa is 0.007. Huh? I mean, you're never going to get that here. There's no direct slice as far as I know. Before they get here, they've they not stop someplace else. But the WHO never gave you an alternative. I think Professor Prasad said the same thing. I so said, if you don't have enough, at least tell people what they can do. Never. They just said you have to take, you must ensure you have PPEs. And they weren't any. No alternatives. We had to run to Holland to get PPEs. Organized ship roads coming here, we still have them in the refrigerator. they're all falling apart. Because they weren't kept in the air conditioning, you understand? So it's all uh, torn up. So we got them, knowing that we'll never probably have to use them, but they were, you know, you had to do these things. So, now came COVID, and the Joe says, test, test, test. Something is going up above acceptable norms that is usual in that period of time, then we ask the physicians, can you please start testing? Because we think maybe it's an arbovirus or something like that. Can you please test? And then we spread a wider net. And when we see what's going on, we tell them to keep on testing for a while so that we get some kind of an idea of how it develops. And once we have that idea, we tell them to stop. We tell them to stop for two reasons. First of all, we don't have the money to pay for all of these tests. And second of all, if we keep on filling up the laboratory with these tests, they don't have any time to do anything else. They don't have the capacity to do their normal work either. So normally, in all normal circumstances, you pick up an elevation of bases, you do testing, and then you stop, and you follow the development of the epidemic in a different manner and you do some random testing to see if it's still going on or not. That's what we've always done. That's what we've done with Dede, that's what we've done with Chikungunya, that's what we've done with Zika, that's what we've done with anything. But suddenly COVID comes and the WHO says test, test, test. The only people who were happy about that were the laboratories. They made a killing. Millions. And or not. Millions. <laughs> Good business. Great deal. Great deal for the people who are making these tests. Even better deal. Because the whole world was testing. Not only our laboratories, everybody was testing. And when we I said this to the NFM, I said, listen, I'm going to stop testing. Because of what I just said. And their answer was You know, you're probably right, but you better keep on testing because if not, you will be considered as unreliable and nobody will come to your country anymore because you're not getting data and they see that your numbers are going up. So, not a good idea. Please keep on testing. So we have to keep on testing. But was it really necessary? Enormous costs, especially for us, if we don't have that type of money and we're spending it on things that aren't necessary. And was it not necessary? Am I talking nonsense to you? So let's take a look. I'll show you this again, this is our epic curve, based on test data, right? This is based on, this is Wuhan, this is Alpha, this is Delta, this is Omicron. So I'll show you data from the syndromic surveillance for 2021. So the first one isn't it? so you have to focus on this group, right? Alpha, Delta, as some of you know, but the others maybe not, we have a, since 15 years, we have a syndromic surveillance system. So we have 10 of the 100 GPs that were on the island, Beaumont was one of them. Uh, we have Sixta is another one of them, any more? Yeah. Okay. Um, so these GPs for 15 years, every week, they're reporting to us on syndromes, and we use that to see if they're out of line. So, if in the meantime, because we're doing this for 15 years, we have graphs. We know what's on average, what we can expect at any given time and moment in the year. And when you peek up over that, at least two weeks, we know something else is going on. Then we ask you to test. This is how it works. So, if that system was going on, shadowing while we were doing this testing for COVID as well. So, what did that come up with? There you go. 2021? Alpha, Delta, Omicron. So we could monitor the epidemic without all of this testing, without telling people to do testing and millions and millions. And we were compelled to keep on testing because they said we would be unreliable, that our data would be unreliable. So when we talk about sensible care I think this is another good example of being non-sensible and if we're talking about sensible care I would venture to let's talk about sensible public health policy or care now I show this for our students that are coming to do their social or public health rotations and I ask them when they come in, I always ask them the question what do you know about public health? And they look at me. And I say, it's okay, it's not your fault. Nobody ever taught you anything in there because it's not important, right? But this is the problem. Which part, or give me, do you have any idea which percentage of the problems in healthcare end up in the clinics? Because we as physicians have all been trained to work in the clinic to work in hospitals, that's what they train us for, right? So, which percentage of the problems in healthcare end up in the clinic? Some people, when I asked the last time, they said 50%? These were GPs. I said, are you nuts? Are you out of your mind? What kind of optimist are you then? So let's be very generous here. Let's say it's 10 or max 15% of the problems (coughs) in health that end up in the clinics, right? So this begs the question, well there are two things First of all, that's what I say to the students as well I don't know about you, but if I've studied 7 years to become a doctor just to solve 50% of the problems I become pretty depressed, I don't know about you So that's one issue, the second issue is Who takes care of the other 85%? Where does that happen? And you weren't trained for that so I would make a case for sensible education of physicians or health workers, etc. Because where is public health in all of this? What we're doing? What are we doing? So that's one thing. The other thing is the thing I touched on already earlier when uh, with Professor Brzezinski. One of the pillars of public health, same as you talk about. With clinical medicine is that you need adequate data if you don't have the data on basis of what are you going to make your policy so if you look at this this is a framework for essential public health functions this was actually taught out um, by people who primarily aren't really related to public health namely the World Bank because what's true elsewhere is also through public health he who has the money decides what happens. Or in Dutch, we put out, but That's what happens. So at a certain point, it became that bad that the World Bank decided to call the WHO. Because the World Bank has more influence in public health and global health than the WHO has. They've got the cash. So WHO and World Bank with the CDC with a couple of others sat together and said, well, how do we strengthen public health? And they came up with this. They still have all the power. That's not the point. But anyway, so, actually there are three domains, one of them is assessment, and that's basically epidemiology and research, that's basically monitoring your health your population. And if you see weird stuff, go in there and investigate, see what's going on. But also provide the tools and necessary research models that you can use in the clinics. And then when you know what's going on, you develop policy, and policy development is not sitting behind a computer making networks with people, going into the neighborhoods, seeing what people want, how they live, what the problems are. Try to use that information and gathering them behind you, so then you make a chance that people will actually listen. And uh, once you have your policy developed, you need to assure that it also gets implemented, that you have an adequate workforce, that you make sure that they're competent, that you can couple the needs together with what you're offering. Build the system the way it should be built. Am I saying that we're doing this? I wish. This is ideal. This is what we would need to have happen. But this is not really what's happening. So I would like to uh, recognize not only for sensible education, but sensible public health. Because the truth is, when we did do a landmark study about 25 years ago, or 30 years ago, we knew what was happening, right? We all heard heard the story before. We knew what was going on. We knew that the most frequent appearing NCDs were hypertension, diabetes, joint complaints, and cancer. We knew. We knew that the central risk factor was obesity. We knew. We knew that it was more than elsewhere. We knew that when we asked, we found out how many people were, were had diabetes cure Jerusalem. The self-report was 5%, but we took a sub-sample and we measured it, we took their blood, it wasn't 5 it was 10%. And at the same period of time in the Netherlands, it was only 2%. So We had 5 times as much in our population, we knew. We made projections for the government, we told them what would happen if we do nothing. We gave them ideas what we needed to do, to get into the bodies, to change the ways of life. We don't create the preconditions, that people can have a healthier life, it's not going to happen. If we don't address the social economic inequities, it's not going to happen. That's supposed to be sensible public health, right? They didn't do it. Why didn't they do it? They said, hey, good ideas. When will we see results? And the idiot in the room said, well, it's going to take a generation. Hey, good plan. Take care of yourself. We'll see you later. Nobody invests as politicians if the plan is to see something better in 25 years. That's why it doesn't work. So if we don't implement So, implementation problems in public health is another issue that needs to be sensible because you can have the data, the data can be okay, but if nothing is done with it,
1: or you do the...